Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his home. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Paris, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Great. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Nick. Uh, it's great to be with you again for this, uh, this final week in our series on Ruth. And uh, as we look at this little section today, hopefully we'll draw some, uh, some threads together from the whole series. How about, I, uh, how about I lead us in prayer as we begin? Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you so much uh, that you have not remained hidden from us, but you've been making yourself known to your people all through history and most of all in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray now as you speak, that we would listen and that we would be humble listeners ready to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. Well, uh, I spend a fair bit of time uh, in my week down at Adelaide University because I, I work part-time with uh, evangelical students there, and I thought uh, I'd begin by showing you a video that the university is using at the moment for promotion. So have a look on screen. 
The first university to admit women. Two Nobel Prizes, then another, then a couple more. 12 knighthoods, 22 Olympians, a pack of COVID-sniffing canines, Australia's first female Prime Minister. Finally, treatments for diseases and other scary things. The first female Queen's Council, Supreme Court Judge and State Governor, all in one. First in the family with a degree, a black belt, a robot. First Aussie to walk in space. Helped detect gravitational waves. Made lots of babies. World top 100 in all this stuff. Launched a satellite, revived lost languages, home to 1,600 brainiacs, and a winery, all in the heart of Australia's most livable city. So, what's next? Make history at the University of Adelaide. Lovable and livable, I think. Um, Right, well, uh, I guess the reason I wanted to show you that uh, is not really uh, to plug the University of Adelaide per se, though it's a good university, along with uh, University of South Australia and Flinders, um, but really I wanted to show you that video because it highlights uh, some ways culturally that we think about being at uni and kind of the point of going to uni. Right? Uh, what's the video saying? I think it's saying that uh, if you want to be someone who's historically significant, if you want to be remembered and known and make a name for yourself, then you need to come to Adelaide University. Right? And, and you notice too that uh, the video presumes something about its target audience. Uh, it presumes, I think, rightly, that university students want that stuff. Right? They want to be known, they want to make history, they want to make a name for themselves. Now, of course, uh, I don't think it's just uh, students going to Adelaide University who want a name for themselves. Uh, maybe you've now passed 25 and you realise that some of your dreams have set sail. You're never going to play at the Australian Open because you've never played tennis, for instance. Uh, but I think all of us actually want to be something regardless of what age we are. Uh, perhaps we have more modest dreams. We, we just want uh, a few friends who know our name. Perhaps uh, we want to be known in our office. Perhaps we want to be known by the other mums at the park or perhaps uh, maybe our past achievements when we get to retirement. Uh, I think lots of ways we want the honour and prestige of, of kind of having a name for ourselves. And in fact, uh, I think it's even possible for this kind of thinking to creep into the way uh, that we think of ourselves as Christians. Uh, quite famously in the Bible, the, the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And so what did they do? They uh, kind of grouped themselves around the big names in their church, Apollos, uh, Cephas, and Paul. And they said, I'm on Paul's team. I'm on Apollos' team. Some of them said, I'm on Jesus' team. It's a bit of a power move, isn't it? Um, they wrapped their lives around these big names for their own honour. And I think in little ways, we're actually tempted to do the same thing at times. Now, we never say this out loud, but perhaps when we think, I want to be a growth group leader, there's a little subtext which is, uh, so that I can be someone, so that I can have a name within the church. You know, I want to be in the band so that I can have a name. I want to preach so that I can have a name. We long to have a name. Now, uh, you might think, why are we talking about names uh, in Ruth? Well, I think Ruth is a story about a family who go from being essentially nameless uh, to longing for a name and, in the end, gaining a name. 
Uh, One writer sums up Ruth like this. He says, uh, the dominant theme of Ruth is God's gracious rescue of Elimelech's family from extinction by the provision of an heir. I hear what he's saying. He's saying that the name of Elimelech's family was almost dead and that name got rescued and that's Ruth uh, in a nutshell. Ruth is a story about nameless people getting a name. Uh, so what I want to do this morning uh, is to reflect on this big theme that I think holds the book together of namelessness, and uh, we're going to see how Elimelech's death created a namelessness crisis for him and for Ruth and for Naomi. We're going to see how that got resolved in the birth of Obed, uh, and later on of David and Jesus. That's where we're headed. We're heading to the, the crisis, and you'll find the handout there uh, to be useful, I think, in, in sense, giving a sense, a sense of direction. Um, before we turn to the, the bit that we had read for us, I want us to return briefly to the crisis that begins the story of Ruth. And so if you've got your Bibles handy, jump back to chapter 1 of Ruth. Uh, hopefully it's close by. Now, uh, you'll remember that this book began with a series of tragedies. Uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died uh, while they're, they're off in Moab, along with her two sons and Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are left behind, Ruth and Orpah. And uh, really, by the end of verse 5, uh, the action to follow is, is set up uh, because of uh, this great tragedy that's unfolded. Now, over the series, uh, we've spoken about the significance of Elimelech's death for Naomi and Ruth, particularly in that it left them helpless and vulnerable. And yet, as the book progresses, we actually see that there's a, another crisis at play in chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. And that is that these characters, particularly Elimelech, have lost their name. Uh, one of the ways we see this is in chapter 4, at the end of the story, when Boaz is, is reflecting on really what Ruth and Naomi need. And he says, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you'll also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow. Uh, why? To maintain the name of the dead with his property. So it's not only a book about the restoration of the helpless, we saw that that's true, that's what we saw last week, but it's also a book about namelessness. You might ask, uh, why is it so important that this guy, Elimelech, would have his name maintained? Uh, why is it so important to be preserved? Right? We, um, we preserve names, don't we? If you look around you, you'll see uh, lots of little names written on uh, plaques on the wall, and that's a way that we remember people who've been significant in the life of our church over history. I think Boaz, though, marrying someone in order to preserve someone else's name, that kind of takes it to a whole another level, doesn't it? Uh, it's really important that Elimelech's name gets remembered in this story. You might think, why is that? I think the, the underlying reason that Elimelech's name needs to get remembered uh, has to do with the group of people that, that he belongs to. Uh, see, he's part of Israel, and Israel aren't just any, uh, any group of people. They're not just any ethnic group. Uh, in the Bible's story, this group of people are the group of people that God has chosen to reverse the effects of humanity rejected him right back in the garden uh, and actually to bless the whole world. And this is a special family. It's a family of promise. And so if, if Abraham's family form part of God's rescue mission to the world, you can imagine, right, that if you're part of that family, you want your name to be remembered within that group of people. 
To add to this, it seems like uh, in the Old Testament, if someone's name was lost from memory, uh, that person was in effect lost from the people of God. Uh, So, for instance, when God was thinking about destroying his people, Israel, his family, because they uh, let him down in a pretty big way by giving a golden calf the credit for rescuing them out of Egypt, uh, God says in Deuteronomy 9.14, Leave me alone and I will destroy them and blot out their name uh, from under heaven. I think that means for Elimelech's name to be lost from memory, uh, in effect, he's, he's by that, he's been cut off from the life of the people of God. Elimelech's not the only one, though, who's lost his name at this point in the story, and uh, Ruth is also nameless. After her husband's uh, death, we find that she's not often called Ruth, Uh, she actually becomes known in the story as the Moabitess or Ruth the Moabitess. The main thing to know about Ruth is that she's not from Israel. And so chapter 2, verse 6, Ruth's come to Israel and she's working in Boaz's field. Boaz says, who's this? And the overseer says, this is the Moabitess, right? That's the, the thing to know about her. Ruth also has lost her name. The other person uh, who's lost their name at this point in the story is Naomi. That's not to say she doesn't have a name, of course she's got a name, but that her name is not honoured, it's not esteemed. And so uh, after the women arrive back, from Beth, uh, back in Bethlehem uh, from their time in Moab, we saw chapter 1 verse 10 that Naomi wants a name change. She wants to be called Mara because Naomi means pleasant or joy, and Mara means bitter. So Naomi has lost her, her husband and her children, and she wants in her name to, to reflect her loss and grief and perhaps dishonour. She's lost her name. And so what we see then is at the start of the story, one of the big tensions, if not the biggest tension of Ruth, is the question as to how this family that's lost their name is going to get a name again. How is Elimelech losing his name through death, uh, Ruth's foreignness and Naomi's bitterness, how is that all going to get fixed up? Well, uh, of course, we've covered some ground since then, so uh, come with me to the the passage that we had read, and we're at the heading, Name and Fame. Uh, Last week, we saw that Boaz had taken some steps to redeem Ruth and Naomi, and we talked about how he made this uh, joyful announcement of their marriage and their redemption in verse 9 and 10. Uh, And as we return to these verses, what I want to pick up on is the implications of that marriage for the problem of namelessness. Uh, So first of all, notice what Boaz says has happened to Elimelech's name through this redemption. Uh, Verse 10 He says, I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. As Boaz marries Ruth, Elimelech gets a name again. He's no longer risking being cut off from Israel. He's been given a name. What about Ruth and her namelessness as a Moabitess? Well, uh, listen to uh, what Boaz says in verse 11. Sorry, what the, the other people say in verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. 
Now, Leah and Rachel here uh, were the wives of a guy called Jacob, uh, and Jacob's other name is Israel. Right? He's kind of one of the, the founding fathers. And so in a sense, uh, Leah and Rachel are founding women, uh, mothers of Israel. And the witnesses uh, turn to Ruth and say, may you be an Israelite woman like these ones. Not just even, will you come and be an Israelite with us? We're kind of willing to put the Moabite thing aside and welcome you in. It's actually, we want you to be as significant as the most important women in our people's story. And Naomi as well uh, has got her name back. Chapter uh, 4, verse 13 to 16, she's no longer called Mara, uh, but she's back as Naomi. And as Boaz and Ruth conceive and have a son... The women of the town see Naomi and she's, uh, she's got this baby in her arms. She seems to be a very active grandmother. And uh, she used to be afflicted by the Lord. And yet as she holds Obed, uh, the women call her to praise the Lord who's, who's blessed her so much. So there's this, um, this really lovely journey in the story. I don't know if you did narratives in primary school. How does it work? There's a, uh, you know, there's a, a situation, a complication, and then there's a resolution at the end. And we've got that here, don't we? There's a, a complication, namelessness, and at this point in the story, actually everything's come together. Uh, everyone's got their name. And you might think, actually, we could kind of stop there, couldn't we? Everything really that needed to be tied up has been tied up. But there's a few more verses and that there's a little twist at this point in the story, or a few more twists actually, left in these final few verses. So we're at uh, the twist, Boaz and Ruth are greater than Elimelech. Uh, one of the twists is in verse 17. Uh, we read, The women said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, and he was the father of David. Uh, this is actually quite an important development in the story. And in case we, we missed it, the writer makes sure we don't with a genealogy that goes from Perez to Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David. Now, who's David? Uh, David's a really important figure in the Bible story. Uh, really, he's the second best king after Jesus that these people ever had. And he's largely... Uh, not always, but mostly remembered with fondness as a king who lived for uh, God's pleasure and uh, he lived as a king who pleased the Lord. Uh, in that sense, he's, he's kind of a prototype for Jesus. Now, by introducing David at this point in the story, I think the writer's flagging that actually the end of Naomi and Ruth's story, it's not just Limelech getting his name back and their restoration as a family. Rather, their story is actually part of a much bigger story of God's big rescue plan to rescue his world through his king. And yet, um, actually, as we look at this genealogy a little bit more closely, there's another twist. And uh, one of the 6pm girls uh, picked this up last week in Question Time. We've seen that this is a story featuring Elimelech's name, right? Uh, not Boaz's. If Boaz and Ruth have a child... Legally, it's actually Elimelech's child, because that's, that's kind of the purpose of their marriage. In this genealogy, though, can you see the, the twist? Uh, who is it that ends up getting honoured in a really big way? Well, it's actually not Elimelech. It's Boaz, isn't it? And Ruth, Perez, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. 
So the question is, right, why does the writer give us the genealogy of David through Boaz and not through Elimelech, particularly when they both really probably came from the same guy, Judah? Uh, He's taking this little detour quite deliberately, I think, through Boaz. Why is that? I think there are two key things that we learn from this little uh, switch of Boaz and Elimelech. The first thing I think we learn is, is what, about what God is like. Uh, God is the God who orders and rules all of human history right down to its most intimate details. As we read Ruth, uh, I wonder if you thought you were reading a story about a kind of unknown family's journey from namelessness and helplessness to redemption. In fact, in God's sovereignty... Uh, Ruth's decision back in chapter 1 to follow Naomi, to go with her and say, your God is my God and your people are my people, um, that little incident was the historical prerequisite for the birth of David. I think that tells us that actually all the messiness of life, the things that we see in this story, right? Famine, death, insignificance, cunning, um, childlessness... All of the mess and, and really hard stuff, actually, in life are not outside of the reign of a God who's got bigger and better plans for the world. Um, God doesn't sit back in his armchair in heaven. He doesn't wind up the, the clock of the world and kind of just let it go. He's active, we see here, in every detail of history uh, for our good and for his glory. The second thing I think we learn from this little name, uh, name switch in the genealogy is about what it means to find a name. Uh, what does it mean for Ruth to find a name in the story? Well, we've seen that Ruth gets a name as she gets married to Boaz and as she uh, becomes a member of Israel. And yet I think this verse suggests that actually the most significant thing about Ruth, it's not the person she married, it's not the people group that she was a part of, those things are a part of her story. But the thing that really mattered about Ruth is that her story was bound to the story of David and God's big rescue plan that involved David. Think about it, right? If if Ruth had not been related to David, would we have her story recorded for us in Scripture? Possibly. Uh, I suspect not. Without David, her story would have been a good story but not a really important one in the, in the kind of flow of the Bible story. Her story, I think, gains its significance from its place within God's history. We'll come back to that idea in just a moment. Let's park that for a tick. But there's one final twist. No more twists, I promise. But one final twist in Ruth's story that happens as the Bible unfolds. And we found that actually in our reading in, uh, in Matthew chapter 1. And so we're at the heading, the end. Uh, Matthew opens his account of Jesus' life with a ripping genealogy. I wonder if you were writing a biography, whether uh, that's how you would begin. Uh, I suspect not, but Matthew does, and it's actually a really helpful genealogy. And it tells us that the end of Ruth and Boaz's story is not just David, but Jesus. So we see, uh, if you grab Matthew 1, open at this point, that that would be a good thing. Um, We see in verse 5 and 6 that Boaz and Ruth get a mention alongside David. 
But the genealogy is not just the genealogy here of of David. We've already had that uh, back in Ruth. This is the genealogy of Jesus. And so on we go to verse 16 and we read, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Ruth and Boaz's story is not just caught up with David, it's with the story of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, uh, we've been talking a lot in this talk about the idea of making a name, and uh, actually in the Bible there's lots of talk about names. The person in the Bible who undoubtedly has the greatest name is Jesus. And we see that hinted at in Matthew chapter 1, where Jesus is described as the Messiah. But actually, as the New Testament goes on, we see Jesus gains an even greater name for himself through what he does on the cross and in his resurrection. Uh, Philippians 2, you've got part of it there on your handout. It tells us that Jesus, though he was God, humbled himself to become the lowest of the low, even to death on a cross. In terms of names and namelessness, what that means is that Jesus, the great name God, made himself nothing. Uh, He made himself nameless, shameful. He died a criminal's death. And yet, verse 9, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Friends, uh, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus' death and resurrection changed the course of history. When Jesus died and rose, there was a new king. There was a global change of regime. And Matthew 1 tells us actually that all of history was headed by God towards that moment. When God took on humanity in Jesus Christ and died for our forgiveness, that was the center of history. And because Jesus did that, we see him gain the greatest of names. He's crowned Lord. I think that's the name that he's given that is the greatest name above all names. Lord. It means he has all power, all authority. And you think back to that video, right? What's it? hoping for, being known, having a name, being historically significant, making history. Uh, Jesus is known. Jesus has a name. Jesus is significant. Jesus has made history. In fact, Jesus is the center point of history. So much so that we actually have used BC and AD to mark that point ever since. So what does all that mean for Ruth and the fact that it's her and Boaz's name in the genealogy, I think the writer of Ruth is teaching us that far beyond belonging to a family, far beyond belonging to a people group, the thing that really matters for Ruth is that she belongs to God. She's come to his shelter, and actually as she comes to God, she finds herself involved in these purposes that go far beyond her family, far beyond her marriage, far beyond the stuff that she does in her life. She finds herself, she finds her story, she finds her name in association with Jesus, the greatest name of all. 
And friends, actually, for us as well, as people who really want to have a name and who want to be known and who want to be significant, we need to see that like Ruth, the way that we get a name is not through marriage, it's not through family, it's not through our achievements. The way that we get a name is about our relationship to the greatest history in the world and to its King, Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, you belong to the centre of history. You belong to the name, the name above every other name. And in fact, your name reflects that. You are called Christian, right? Christian. We spoke earlier about the Corinthians and their desire to make a name for themselves and, you know, tying themselves to different leaders. But listen to how Paul, when he writes to them, how he starts his letter. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, To the church of God in Corinth, to all those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. As he writes to this proud and boastful church, even in his introduction, he kind of repositions them. He says, actually, the big thing you guys need to know about yourselves as I write to you is that alongside a whole bunch of other believers, you call on the name of Jesus the Lord. And so he goes on in chapter 3, and you'll find this in your handout. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. If you belong to the name above every name, you don't need to make your own name by boasting. You don't need to make history so you have the past, the present, the future, everything. That's what Paul says. Because you belong to the Lord of history. You are of Christ, and Christ is of God. I think that's quite an astounding promise, isn't it? You have everything. Listen to how Peter puts the flip side of that in 1 Peter chapter 4 in your handouts again. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter's saying that even in moments of shame and insignificance, in the times when we most seem to be nameless, actually namelessness is not the reality of the Christian life. The Christian is not lowly even though they suffer. The Christian is not insignificant even though they are shamed. The Christian even in those moments of great shame, doesn't need to feel ashamed because they bear the name of the greatest king ever. They bear Jesus' name. And so, friends, like Ruth, when we come to Jesus, uh, we actually come to a much bigger story and a much bigger name than the stuff that we're doing in our life, our name, our story. Uh, If you want to make history... You need to come to the one who's made history. Uh, Come to the one who's headed all of history towards that point when his son was crowned Lord and who one day will be heralded by every human knee. Um, 
We don't make history. History has been made and we get to join in. And we get to be called by the name of the one who rules history, uh, the centre of history, the one that everything is about. Uh, we get to be called Christian. I think it's terrific and I want to pray uh, in response. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much that we have everything because we are of Christ and Christ is of God. Help us not to boast, but to tie our lives to him, the name above every name. In Jesus' name, amen.